It was the early 90s, and a South African serial killer was on the loose. On a rampage of rape and murder, he sent a Johannesburg suburb of women running for cover in blood-curdling terror. In a deadly game of cat and mouse, investigative journalist Janine Lazarus was used by the police as a decoy to trap the Norwood serial killer. If we're to believe that journalists should shape the news, not make it, Lazarus broke just about every rule in newsroom ethics as she became increasingly obsessed with Gwibis Galdenais. In True Crime Memoir, Bait to Catch a Killer, she gives a personal account of the fascinating pre-digital era of the 1990s newsroom ethics and questionable police procedures. To Catch a Serial Killer is the official companion podcast series, a jackpot production featuring Janine Lazarus, Jacaranda FM News editor Marius van der Velt, as well as various guest contributors. The human fascination with serial killers and reasons why they do what they do stretches back decades. Jack the Ripper, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and then our very own subject, the Norwood serial killer, Kubis Galdenais. Over the five episodes, we'll delve into Kubis, the people who got close up and personal with him, and those who were there to tell the story, the mistakes they made while telling the story, and then obviously the things they got right. Our guest today is Anton Harbour, Caxton Professor of Journalism at FITS and one of the people best placed to debate and discuss journalism and reporting over the past 35-odd years. Prof Harbour. So Janine's book's obviously now set in the late 1992. So 1991 going into 1992. Journalism, Janine's practice, is obviously also a reflection of the time. And we're going to go into the various aspects that goes into impacting the craft. But now I want to start with you, and I guess it's a basic question, but it's a very complicated question as well. The actual craft, has it changed massively since then to now? Many aspects of it have changed deeply and fundamentally. We're still storytellers. We still gather information, process that information, and try and tell a story to an audience. But the techniques, the methodology, the approach, the research is deeply and fundamentally different because of the internet and because of uh, social media. The internet is a fantastic and incredible tool for all information, but for journalists who work with information in particular. It's changed the way we collect information. It's changed the way we process it. It's changed the way we distribute the information. So we are still storytellers. The function we serve remains much the same, but the way we do it and the way people consume it is fundamentally different. Then there's the gonzo journalism aspect to it, which is obviously, I think it's in the book, it's vividly illustrated. I guess, and Prof. Hobart, I'd like you to, like for me, there's still a certain romanticism to gonzo journalism for some of us. Well, Ante S. Thompson and those kind of things, right? And I think there's some, some journalists who just want, you know, go out and be the story kind of thing. But then also there's the negative aspect to it. And you've experienced, I think, both, right? Yeah, but I, in chatting to Prof. Harbour, I broke just about every rule in the, in the newsroom guidebook. I mean, every editor I worked for said, stay out of a story. But there was that dichotomy because I was living in the area and when the opportunity presented itself, my editor at the time said, well, you know, if the police want to use you in an effort to lure the serial killer out, you can. 
does that kind of involvement or a journalist throwing herself or himself into a story still happen where the story becomes you you're not just reporting it you are becoming the story well certainly what we've had since then is very much the rise of a celebrity journalist right but that's a certain kind of journalism so i think we see journalism taking different shapes and different voices through different outlets and of course the fact that the internet allows one to talk directly to an audience you know it used to always be through an outlet like a newspaper or a television station or a radio station now a lot of journalism is done direct to audience by people who run a website or a blog or who operate on social media and they are in a sense they control their own outlet that has many advantages and many disadvantages it has the advantage that anyone can be a journalist anyone can speak to um massive audiences if if they attract those audiences it also means that a lot of crazies and second rate aspirant pseudo reporters can uh, talk directly to an audience and sometimes do it very badly or even dangerously so you know the internet is just a tool it's a fantastic tool for journalists when put to good use it's a dangerous tool when put to bad use is there as much fact checking not to say that we were brilliant fact checkers back in the day we often got things really really wrong but because of the advent of the internet and because things are so easily accessible on not exactly exemplary platforms are journalists taking that information that's posted on social media as as the truth if there is such a concept that exists i mean do they fact check it is it still as rigorous as one would like to believe So the speed and immediacy of digital communication means that there isn't often the same time we had in newspapers or traditional media like traditional television and radio there was an editing process a selection process a fact checking process that usually happened before the story came out because you had time now the news cycle is so fast often the story is put out and then you check the facts that's the most often practiced because the speed of news is so much faster in a digital world on the other hand fact checking is made much easier by the internet if i want to check your background and i know how to do sophisticated search on the internet i can very quickly and quite easily learn an enormous amount about you including a lot of the stuff you don't want me to know which once again is a good and a bad thing it allows us to fact check when we want to a uh, much quicker and easier and have that information at our fingertips but it also breaks down privacy it means uh, people can watch each other much more closely so um all of these things have positives and negatives but they're kind of accentuated it's a internet is a fantastic tool for journalism and for enabling people to tell their stories and get information out and around but it's also because they aren't gatekeepers also much much more dangerous than traditional media when I mean, i was think about imagine apartheid in the age of the internet like how difficult that would be in terms of we all on twitter so what do you do do you prevent white people from falling black you hear what i'm saying like the the pettiness of apartheid mm. that we that and you more than than me probably experienced imagine that in the age of the internet like it it blows my, it it cannot be possible 
I wish that were true. I wish that were true. And certainly when the internet first came, it was hailed by all of us as this great democratic force that would give everyone a voice, everyone would be able to speak out. It would break down separation and integrate people and connect people in an extraordinary way. That's what it promised. It didn't deliver on that promise because, um, like so much of traditional media, a great deal of it ends up being owned by certain brands and certain voices and controlled. It's much harder for states to control, but states do still control it or turn it off when it suits them to not to. So we know, for example, in China, there's mass, they've succeeded in having massive control over the Internet, which originally we thought would not be possible. Is there still space for gonzo, do we call it traditional gonzo journalism? I don't know how, yeah, (laughs) traditional gonzo journalism sounds like everything it's not. But is there still space for that in 2021? I think so. I think so. I, you know, I think maybe ironically, because journalism has been so challenged in recent years, in some ways, there's, a, there's an attempt to return to traditional values of truth-telling, of fact-checking, of balance. But there's, the, the nature of the Internet is there's space for all kinds of different journalism. So the short answer is yes. If you want to be a gonzo journalist and you create a blog or a website or do it on social media... It's there for you to do. It's much easier to do than ever. Prof, take us back to when you were an editor and you ran, I mean, you ran significant newsrooms of old. What was the energy like there? I mean, you were working under an oppressive regime. You were bringing out a newspaper at all odds. I mean, your reputation precedes you. What was it like then? What was the energy like? What was it like working under the government of the day when you were perpetually pushing the envelope and at great personal risk? So it's quite interesting to look back on it because on the one hand on the one hand it was terrifying because we were taking great risks and the potential consequences were huge detention jail and there were attempts to kill journalists in our newsroom so it was pretty frightening but it was also the most exciting time one because it was such a challenging time when there was such a clear enemy that we went after as journalists there was clear right and wrong. It was, it was also very exciting. Um, and we were very fortunate in the newspaper I ran, which is now the Mail and Guardian, it was then the Weekly Mail, in that at least in the early years we were owner editors. Yes. And I don't think there's anything as luxurious and free as being your own boss. You know, we all... The, the, the biggest problem for journalists is always the managers, the owners, the brand that restrains them, that directs them, that governs the journalism they can or cannot do. Every journalist will tell you that's their biggest restraint. When you're an owner-editor of a newspaper that um, has very little advertising and makes very little money, but makes its name by being outspoken and doing things others don't want to do, that is uh, great freedom and great excitement, even though we were much more directly censored. I mean, we were very severely censored. So that set the rules for what we could or couldn't do. But we had great fun challenging and breaking those rules. And on that point, I mean, I worked for 
what was allegedly a white liberal newspaper. But as a crime reporter, black victims were still reported on as a homogenous mass. I mean, the, the Norwood serial killer killed one black woman. I had to, I don't know, jump through hoops to try and find out who she was. And it's, it's the jury is still out. Nobody knows whether she was raped or not because I don't know if the police even bothered to check. To find a photograph of her was only available in black and white. His white victims, I had color photographs and I had their backstory. So even though it was the white liberal press, there was still, as you said, there was still somebody conducting the orchestra. You know, there was still somebody, there was still the, the big blue chip corporates, the multinationals who were advertising. Yeah, look, um, uh, censorship then was very strong and very direct, state censorship, that defined the parameters of what we could do, particularly for uh, a commercial liberal newspaper, as, as, as you described. But also, when you look back and when you go look at the newspapers of that period, we had practices and cultures that were shaped by apartheid society. So did we treat black lives like white lives? The newspapers didn't. Did we give the same coverage to crime in black areas as white areas? We didn't. Did we cover black politics the way we covered white politics? We didn't. So the liberal papers did it better than others that were less liberal, shall we say. But they certainly also still worked under the shadow of apartheid. But some of it hasn't changed all that much, has it, in 2021 in terms of the way we cover black bodies now and the way we covered black bodies in late, late 1992, we might say there's been some progress, but it's still not where it should be. No, of course, there's still issues and debates over how we cover things. Prof, it's also a worldwide phenomenon and not only a South Africa phenomenon, right? Well, what you say is important. So first of all, let me say you, can, you can't say it's the same. Um, you go look at the papers then and you look at them now. They're very different for a whole host of reasons. There's very little comparison. But the other thing that the internet and digital media has brought us is much greater scrutiny of the media, which has enabled much more debate, for example, and many more challenges around how these issues are covered. You know, so Black Lives Matter is a huge international phenomenon. And a lot of that communication and that campaigning and that questioning is enabled by the internet. I keep thinking, Prof, I keep thinking of Marikana, and I keep thinking the way that, and you're right, it's the internet, and it's, it's my access to information, but that kind of was my, my place where it said the way we cover black bodies and the death of black bodies is not okay. Maybe my Damascene moment should have come earlier, but that was where it came for me, where I was like, this is not okay. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, it would be very interesting to compare the coverage of Marikana to the coverage of Sharpville. You know, the first really good pictures of Sharpville came out a long time after the event. First internationally and then locally weeks after the event. Can I ask you then about the coverage when I was a young reporter? I mean, I was at the lower end of the food chain. I wasn't covering politics. I was chasing serial killers. The Boy Patong massacre happened. We voted yes in the referendum. It was really a pivotal time of a country in transition. How did reporters then report on the Boy Patong ma massacre? I mean, were they, how did you report on the, the Boy Patong massacre? Because that was what, in, in the early 90s? 
First of all, you much more had to be there or go there as soon as possible afterwards because you didn't have cell phones and digital communication that that enables you to do more from your desk or from anywhere. Secondly, you didn't have, um, or you barely had cell phones, I would have thought at the time of Boi Patong. And you still didn't have cell phones with cameras. So that, cap that capacity of ordinary people to record and give us stuff wasn't there. And of course, the other critical factor that shaped the coverage was that it was pretty dangerous to cover even afterwards, to try and cover and try and expose what happened. So the dynamics of coverage were so different, so different. Did we cover it better then than we do now? Yeah, that's the question. And it's a very hard one to answer. And that, that's exactly the nub of, of, has journalism got better? We accept that the internet is an amazing tool. Mm. But we've also discussed, you've raised the issue that we now have citizen journalism where we have bandits with cell phones mm. and, you know, who suddenly become latter-day experts and provide what they think is erudite opinions, and it isn't. Has, has journalism suffered because of it? So first of all, I would say what you're describing is some crazy with a cell phone, you know, telling stories true or false is not journalism, Okay. So what we have to reassert is journalism is what journalists do. People who, who follow certain practices, certain rules, certain ethics, certain professional standards um, in pursuit of truthfulness and factfulness and storytelling. That's not the crazy with a cell phone who proclaims himself a journalist. I don't use the phrase citizen journalism because that's either you're a journalist or you're not or you're just somebody making a noise which has its place and is great to have there but it very seldom is journalism. We have to reassert the fact that journalism is a professionally prescribed practice by trained, skilled people. I have to ask you a question, and that is, are you born a journalist? Is it part of your DNA, or can you learn how to be one? Because as a young reporter, I don't come from an academic background at all. I started by making tea and sandwiches on a newspaper. So I had and it was a tiny little community newspaper that was, you know, very, very narrow in its approach. It was hammered into me by the late Johnny Johnson of The Citizen, the terrifying Johnny Johnson, having a nose for news. Is it something that is part of your genetic structure? Are there people who are born to be journalists or can they become them? Look, there are obviously people with, with a natural talent and passion for the storytelling and the research and the capacity to get people to talk to them and finding out what's going on. There are people who, who are born to that. But, you know, it's not unlike a great surgeon. Certainly some surgeons have a fantastic skill and talent for it and were born with that skill and talent. They still need training. They still need teaching. And a person who doesn't have that can, be, can become a, a very good, even a great surgeon through practice and teaching and learning. So it's much like that. I mean, some people take to it more easily because they're born with the instinct and, and the passion for it. But there's no question in my mind that to be a contemporary journalist, you are much more effective and capable if you, for example, understand the new tools and techniques of digital research. True. So, you know, um, we teach people to do something called um, 
echolocation or chronolocation. What is that? Big words. That is the skill to, for example, see a picture of something happening and from that picture work out where it happened, what time it happened, who's in the picture, unwrap using the internet, using sophisticated internet tools to learn all about that, to verify what's there, but also to learn who these people are, etc., etc. That's putting together satellites and other imagery. So those are fantastic tools, which it's not instinct. You need it to learn. Prof, that was now my point. Like, actually, that takes us back to my first question. Because, yes, it's changed journalism fundamentally in terms of what is possible, but it hasn't changed journalism in terms of what a journalist needs to do, if that makes sense. So it's easier now, but the the actual steps are still the same, right? No, that's true. We still... What we do is the same. Yes. We find stories, we research the stories, we verify the stories, we fill out the background, we put them in context, we edit them, we process them, and we try to tell them in a way that captivates the reader and educates and entertains the reader. So that's what a journalist did then, it's what a journalist does now. But the process by which they do it and the process by which they deliver it and the way in which it's consumed, very different. And then... One last question, Janine. I think, and I think this is a, an interesting way to end the discussion. Unfortunately, podcasts still need an end. <laughs> Looking at the way then that you told the story then, and then if you had to tell the story like now, would it be markedly different? I don't know if editors would allow me to, to have crossed the, the line. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Would I have done it again? Yes. But I mean, if you take into consideration the, the technological advances, the political sensitivities, all of those. But remember, I mean, the serial killer was operating when DNA was not even a thing. It only showed its face, if you like, in sort of the early sort of mid-1990s, and that's why the serial killer kept evading the police because of a weird blood type anomaly. So right now what the professor is telling you is that there is just so much more medical science or tools that a journalist is now equipped with that I don't think that kind of gonzo journalism would be necessary. You pose a very interesting question. It's true you would have different ways in which to try and capture that person. Very many different photographic tools. And and also you would be looking to tell the story today in a much more multimedia way. Absolutely. You wrote for a newspaper, you're trying to get the occasional black and white picture. But nowadays you you would be looking to tell it in multimedia in many different ways, video and photography and sound and so on. So you would tell it in most likely in a different way. But you know, there's a kind of resurgence across Africa in particular of undercover journalism. And I think that relates to what you were talking about doing. A journalist pretending there was someone other than a journalist in order to get a story going undercover. Mm. And it's been very clear to me in watching African journalism in recent years that there's a very valuable resurgence And in a sense, that's telling you that the same old techniques are still very important. 
because there's still nothing like seeing it or experiencing it yourself. So just can I ask a final question? Is journalist still, is it still an esteemed craft? I mean, I know plenty of people who hate journalists. I think it's a fantastic craft. Yes, of course we do because we love it and we've done it. But we struggle with the breakdown of trust. We struggle with the fact that many of our colleagues in journalism have let us down, have broken that trust. So in many ways we have to work hard to rebuild the notion of why journalism is important and valuable and a wonderful, exciting thing to do. Yes, thank you. You've been listening to To Catch a Serial Killer, the official companion podcast series to Janine Lazarus' true crime memoir, Bait to Catch a Killer. For easy access to future episodes, subscribe via your favorite podcast app or via jackpod.co.za.